Just before I begin, uh, for those of you that haven't spoken to me yet, I'll just tell you um, the latest that's happened to me. Um, got the MRI results back um, last Thursday. Probably not too big a deal, but they found two little lesions, five millimeter and eight millimeters, there and there-ish. Um, so waiting for the specialist to come back from holiday, and then I'll go and see him. Uh, but I would in November when he's got an appointment. But I would appreciate your continued prayers. That would be fantastic. Thank you. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you are good to us. Thank you that you are the one who has brought new life into this world. Thank you that you are the one who is with us at all times, in the good times and the not-so-good times. Thank you, Father, that you understand us. Lord Jesus, we just reflect on that last little verse where John reminds us that you do not need any testimony about mankind because you know us intimately. And Lord, we come this morning to approach your word, and each of us has had a different week, and each of us come with different positions before you, or, or different things that have, that have gone on through the last week. And Lord, thank you that this morning you do not just meet us as a group, which you do, but you meet us also as individuals, and that you are right here with each one of us. And Father, we pray that, that this morning we would be aware of your presence. Lord, that you would just open our eyes of our heart that we might see you. Lord, that we might learn to know you better, that we might understand what it is that, that you have to say to us. Thank you, Lord, that, that there is so much truth in the Scriptures. Thank you for all that you have done. Thank you, Lord, for the signs that you performed to point us back to yourself and to, to what you have ultimately done for us. I pray, Lord, that you would speak into our hearts. Father, I pray that the Spirit would move in this place and would even use the words of this mouth this morning for the benefit of us as a people, us as individuals, and for the benefit of you and your kingdom. Amen. A month ago when uh, Glenis learned that she was going to be doing the service, she looked at me because the title I gave her was uh, Ceremony and Ceremonialism. And she, every week she came and said, I still don't understand what this is all about, Nick. How, what, what is ceremony and ceremonialism? And she still doesn't. And what's the bet? Next Wednesday she'll come to me and say, I still don't have a clue what you meant, Nick. <laughs> Here in John chapter 2, as John is still introducing us to the person of Jesus, we see an occasion of ceremony, of joy, of excitement, of, of a wedding, of a festival. By the way, Jesus partied. I, I think we need to remember that. Jesus went to parties. He wasn't this sort of straight-laced, suit-and-tie-wearing guy all the time. He knew how to have fun. And when he turned water into wine, he did it on a grand scale. Here we have ceremony. 
and an amazing miracle from Jesus, just because. And only a few days afterwards, we find pure ceremonialism. We find the temple of God meant to be the place where God is to be found by His people, where God is to be worshipped, the place which is supposed to be holy ground. And instead of God being worshipped, we find the ceremonies being undertaken, and, and it's just crass commercialism, and, and it's, it's not about God, although all the right things are still happening. All the sacrifices were occurring, but, but it wasn't really about God anymore. So, let's start with this, with this wedding at Cana. Cana is a small village about four, five, six kilometers northeast of Nazareth, um, it's the place where Nathaniel comes from. If you read the bit that we didn't preach from last week, Nathaniel comes from Cana. When, and there's this wedding. And we hear that Mary is there, Jesus' mom. And we hear that Jesus is invited and his disciples are invited as well. And of course, we know the story because halfway through the celebration, or sometime through the celebration, the wine runs out. And I don't know, if it was me today, I'd say, oh, well, too bad, you've had enough. Some of you, Uncle Todd, you're looking a bit sloshed already. That's fine. But, but we don't understand. A wedding in those days could go for like a week. And if you ran out of wine, you were breaking with custom, you were breaking with tradition. At the very least, the, the bride and groom, the family, would, would face shame and humiliation for years because you ran out. You ran out of wedding wine. At the worst, though, you know, you could actually be taken to court. You could be taken to court for running out of wine at the wedding because you were breaking with tradition and breaking with custom. This is a big thing, and, and it's perhaps why the servant in, in verse 2 is so concerned. Um, they, they find out, not verse 2, uh, they find out and they, they seem to go to Jesus' mum. Maybe she had something to do with the wedding. There's no more wine. What are we going to do? This is going to cause dishonor on this happy couple. And here we have the strangest thing, because Mary goes to Jesus and says, Jesus, um, there's a problem. We've run out of wine. This is the first miracle that Jesus does. Why does Mary go to him and say, Jesus, we've got a problem? Does she expect him to do a miracle? Maybe. Maybe she's just relying on him. It, it seems to me that Joseph by this stage is already dead, and, and, and there's Jesus, and she just needs to rely on him. We've got to do something. You're resourceful. But notice how Jesus changes the circumstances. Mary, I think, comes to him, mother to son, saying, help. Jesus turns to her and says, actually, you know what? This isn't a mother and son thing. What does he say in verse 4? Dear woman, that's not our problem. My time has not yet come. Dear woman, that's not our 
problem. My time has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. What is he saying? He's saying, Mary, I'm not here to work on your timetable. You you know what he's done is she's gone from her coming mother to son is, is returning and saying, actually, saviour to person who needs saving. Woman, it doesn't concern us. I, I, this is not the reason why I came. The reason I came is, is to save the world. My time has not yet come. John, that's a key phrase for for the hour coming, the time when Jesus suffers and dies and is risen from the dead. There is the hour when his time comes. And here he says at the very beginning, don't, why, why are you trying to push me ahead on your agenda? My time has not yet come. I don't run on a human agenda. I'm running on God's agenda. And I think so often we want God to run on our agenda, don't we? We want to be the ones who say, God, just do this now. Sort it there. I myself have been guilty of this in the last two weeks. I've been saying, God, just sort it out now. Finish. And I think we need to hear what Jesus says here. He says, I'm not running on a human agenda. I'm running on God's agenda. And we need to remember that. But we also need to remember the next verse. You know what? God doesn't run according to our agendas. We don't get to tell God what to do. But isn't he so full of grace that sometimes he just does it? Mary says to the servants, just do what he tells you to do. Isn't that amazing? The agenda of God is changed. Well, not changed, just sort of started a bit early, maybe, because Mary asked him, and because it's, yeah, big in the culture, but such a small thing. No more wine. No more wine, and that's enough for Jesus to say, I'll do it. I'll do it. Doesn't mean he'll always do that, but, but sometimes he does, and that is amazing. So what does he do? He gets the servants to get these uh, stone jars, um, probably about 75 liters each, so we're talking 450-odd liters, and they, they fill it to the brim. These, these are jars used for purification washing, so that, so that people, when they ate, would be clean. And instead, 
Jesus has them filled with water and the servants dip a bit out and take it to the master of ceremonies. And verse 10 is the most amazing verse because the master of ceremonies is astounded. He says the best wine usually gets served first. Let me think it through. If you serve the best wine first, people get sloshed on the good wine and then they won't bother to notice how bad the late wine is. And yet here, you have served the best wine. Last. The new wine. The one before is inferior. And John tells us that through this, Jesus revealed his glory. How did he reveal his glory? How does turning water into wine reveal glory? Well, in two ways, I think. First of all, just a miraculous sign. Only God could do something like that. But how does God reveal his glory? He reveals it in his compassion towards this couple. He reveals it in his compassion towards this couple. And, and I think this, this wedding feast gives us a glimpse of something of the great wedding feast on the day when he returns where, where his glory will be fully revealed for all to see. I mean, is it, any, is it any accident that the Bible speaks of the wedding feast of the Lamb? I'll tell you what, the wine there is going to be awesome. <laughs> wow. If Jesus made it, why not? <laughs> These are signs, says John. Signs. Someone I read said signs are the places where heaven and earth come together. To put it another way, it's a time when, when something of the kingdom of God breaks through into this present moment. When God's glory is revealed today in anticipation of when it will be revealed. And what a wonderful circumstance here. These people, they just, they don't have anything. They've run out. They've gone beyond their wits. And Jesus helps it. And shows the compassionate heart of God and shows the glory of the Son. And his disciples believe in him. And yet they go then to the temple in Jerusalem, the, the heart of Judaism, the, the, the national throbbing center of all of the nation. And it's Passover time, so there's lots of people there. Probably it sort of goes from 70,000 to 250,000 people in Jerusalem and you needed to have the right kind of money to pay your temple tax each year because you couldn't use a coin with an emperor's head on it or any other idol symbol on it, and you had to change the money, and you needed all the animals for the sacrifice, and, and there needed to be some commerce around because this is a big deal. And I don't think Jesus is frustrated so much by the, the fact that people are buying animals 
or changing coins. What's frustrating to Jesus is that they have taken the temple where God is meant to be worshipped, where, where God's glory is meant to be seen, And they've taken the glory of God and they've just sort of uh, da, 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 blocked their eyes to it and made it into a crass, just a place of commercialism and entertainment and noise and nonsense. You're supposed to be able to go in there and reflect on the goodness of God and instead you're hearing the, the lowing of cattle and the fluttering of doves and the shouts of the money changers. And Jesus drives him out. I believe that there are two incidents where he drives him out. This one here in John and the synoptic one at the end of his ministry. And he drives him out. And if, if I'm right, and there were two, just... When he goes away, they go back to business as usual. Isn't that horrible? disciples figure out what's, what's causing this. They remember Psalm 69, verse 9, passion for God's house will consume me. Passion for God's house. Why? Because it is the place where God is to be met, where God was to be found, where God's glory was to be reveled in, where God was to be worshipped, and instead it was this monstrosity of a place And Jesus, it, it was offensive to him. And notice in verse 16, he says quite clearly, I am the Son of God. He says, stop turning my Father's house into a marketplace. I think what we see here is God's passion to be worshipped rightly. God's passion to meet with His people. God's passion to be with His people. You know, like, like He was at the wedding in Cana. It doesn't have to be quiet. It, I mean, that, that God was with His people in the wedding in Cana and they were having a party. But, but here we see stale religion and ceremonialism that is just... I mean, they were doing all the right stuff. They were sacrificing all the right animals. But it was... Crass, pure religion, or rather, impure religion. And I think it's something we always need to be questioning ourselves, whether we are worshipping God in spirit and truth, or, or if something else is driving our agenda. And it's a provocative scene in the temple. <laughs> and yet, I suspect their consciences were struck because they don't go to Jesus and say, Oi, what are you doing? They go to Jesus and they say, Oi, prove to us you have the right to do what you're doing. As in, yeah, probably you're right. This isn't right. But who gave you the authority to change things? And this wonderful passage where Jesus says, you want a sign? 
destroy this temple, I'll raise it in three days. He can be so enigmatic, Jesus. Because the authorities and the people assume he's talking about the bricks and mortar, which took 46 years, started by Herod, finished by one of his sons. And they say, nonsense, you're an idiot. Even the disciples are confused by what he said. What is he talking about? And it's only after Jesus has died and been raised to life do they think back and go, ah, temple being raised. Only after Jesus is resurrected does it make sense. And as they reflect on what he said, they find faith. You see what Jesus has done here? He's he's turned around and said, it's not about the temple. It's not about your doing all the right things. Yeah, God wants you to worship Him properly, but... But ultimately, you want to know what, you want to have a proof of this? You want a a sign that I should be listened to in this? Well, here it is. I am God. And the proof will be when I am alive again. On Thursday night in my lecture, we were talking with the students and saying, how do you know that Jesus really is God? And I think there are two things, two proofs that have to go hand in hand. Jesus said he was. By itself, that's not enough. Lots of people have claimed to be the Messiah. He said he was, and God raised him from the dead. By what authority do you do these things? Wait and see. God will vindicate me. By what authority do you claim that this is your father's house? Wait and see. My father will raise me when you destroy me. And I wonder whether this isn't perhaps why, although some people believe the signs that he does in miracles, Jesus doesn't entrust himself to them because their faith is based just on externalities and and there's no vindication. They're just following along with what they see. It's a bit like the people in John chapter 6 who just want bread to eat and just want to, more signs please, more signs. And, and I think Jesus says ultimately the, the key to our faith is the resurrection. Jesus doesn't entrust himself before two people before the resurrection. And yet now that he has been raised, he entrusts himself to us when we entrust ourselves to Him. The temple was eventually raised to the ground, the physical one. And the true temple was eventually hung on a cross. And the physical temple was made obsolete 
because now there is a new temple where we can worship in spirit and truth. Jesus said we need to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. There is a new temple whose name is Jesus and who serves as the great high priest in that temple. As Hebrews chapter 4 tells us, the great high priest who, because he was made like us in every way, is able to intercede for us in every way. The one who shows God's glory in what he did, in his passion, ultimately in his passion of the cross. And so we see ceremony and the grace of God and we see ceremonialism and the wrath of God with the promise of the grace of God. Isn't it great though that the wine that Jesus made is better than the previous wine? The best with the Lord comes at the end. The best with the Lord comes at the end. And all these signs that John reads, uh, writes, and that we read, they're there to point us to the end. What, how does he finish the book? So much more that could be written. But these have been written so that you might believe and know and anticipate the glory of the Lord. Amen.